Okay, I, I think we'll, we'll get started. So thank you everybody for coming um, this evening um, to listen to this talk on better organs, better outcomes. And we're going to discuss what the current goals are for research in organ donation and transplantation. We've got two talks this evening. The first from um, Dr. Patrick Trotter, who is a PhD student in the Department of Surgery at the University of Cambridge. And the second talk is from Professor Nicholson, who is a Principal Research Associate within the department. So we'll have the two talks, which will last about 40 minutes, and then we have got about 20 minutes for questions. So we'll start off with Patrick. Yes, hello, and thanks again for coming this evening. As Sarah said, my name is Patrick. I'm doing my PhD, funded by NHS Blood and Transplant looking at ways that we can increase organ donation and increase transplant activity in the UK. Uh, so as I'm sure you're probably all aware, sorry, there we go. As I'm sure you're probably all aware, there's a current uh, pressing need to expand the organ donor pool with quite a large discrepancy between organ supply and demand. And what this figure demonstrates is the gray bar shows the number of transplants we carry out in the UK every year. The blue bar shows the number of deceased donors we have in the UK every year. And the dotted line above shows the number of people currently awaiting a solid organ transplant. And you'll be able to tell for yourselves that those lines don't exactly match up. So there's around 6,500 people currently awaiting a solid organ transplant in the UK. And of that number, around 400 people die every year on the transplant waiting list. And in fact, one in six people who are listed for a liver, heart or lung transplant will die before an organ even becomes available. So there really is a pressing need to expand the organ donor population. And transplant clinicians have been trying various different methods to do this, but one method has been through using higher-risk donors or higher-risk organs. Principally, this has been done through the increasing number of DCD donors. So these are donors who have donated organs following circulatory death. So they're deemed to be higher risk because they've got a period where there's no blood going to the organs. Therefore, after transplantation is viewed, the graft will function worse. We've also been using organs from donors with multiple comorbidities, so donors with high blood pressure, diabetes, heart disease, and also liver disease. And also importantly, the average age of our donors has been increasing, with now around 30% of our deceased donor population being age greater than 60. However, there's one group of donors that has never been really assessed the potential we could get from them, and that is donors with infection. And this is quite a wide variety of donors which expands lots of different areas, but for the purposes of my research, I've looked at donors who have increased risk behaviour for blood-borne viral diseases, and this as an example is people who inject drugs or have been in prison and therefore have a greater risk of getting HIV or hepatitis C. Next, donors who have a cause of death secondary to infection. And thirdly, we've looked at donors who have active viral infections pre-donation. So if we first look at donors with increased risk behaviour for blood-borne viral disease, you may be thinking, how did we identify such donors? The, uh, the UK population is so diverse, it's very difficult to initially identify these. But luckily for the UK, NHSBT oversees all uh, transplant activity in the UK, and they maintain a registry on the clinical characteristics of all organ donors and recipients. And you can access this data through computer coding. So you can actually pick a subset of the donor population that you're interested in, and then map their outcomes to the recipients and see what impact they had on transplant outcome. So if we look at the increased risk behaviour donors, there are concerns regarding the use of organs from these donors, particularly relating to disease transmission of HIV, hepatitis C and hepatitis B. And the concern really relates to the fact that current microbiology often isn't sensitive enough to truly detect the, present of, the presence of infection. And this is most true with regards to hepatitis C, where there's a serology window period of around 70 days. So from day zero, when you actually get the infection, it can take up to day 70, based on our screening tools for organ donors, to actually tell you whether or not you've got hepatitis C. So if you donate an organ in those 70 days, there's a possibility that you'll transmit infection to the recipient. If we look at the current UK guidance from the Advisory Committee on the Safety of Blood Tissues and Organs, or SABTO for short, they say that any behavioural history that will put a donor at increased risk of a blood-borne viral infection must be obtained, and that any serological tests or any infection tests we do in the donor should be interpreted in light of this behavioural history. So we wanted to look over the UK population of the last 13 years and see what impact using organs from these donors has had on transplant outcome and assess whether or not it's actually safe to do this. And to do that, we looked at specific characteristics in our donor population. We decided to look at men who have sex with men, intravenous drug use, imprisonment, and also other high-risk sexual behaviour, which includes things such as exchanging sex for money or drugs. And when we looked at the last 13 years, what we found was there's 640 consented deceased donors who had these risk behaviours, so around 4% of the total donor population over that time period. 
of which 294 had a history of intravenous drug use, 74 had a history of MSM, 86 had a history of those other high-risk sexual behaviours I mentioned to you, and 255 had imprisonment. And then when we looked at, from the 640, how many actually proceeded to have organs used for transplantation, it was only 392. So there's definitely a discrepancy between what's being consented and what is being used. And if we look at this trend over time, with red showing the number of donors with increased risk behaviour whose organs were actually used for transplantation, and blue showing the number that weren't used, you can see as time's gone on, the number being consented has increased, but so too has the blue bar. And what this blue bar indicates to us is there is a potential resource of organs there for transplantation that currently aren't being utilised. If we quickly look at the clinical characteristics of these donors who had these increased risk behaviours, which are abbreviated to be IRB, Importantly, they were significantly younger than all other deceased donors. And so this is important because uh, for all transplant types, be it heart, lung, liver or kidney, if your donor is younger, you have better outcomes following transplantation. They're also more likely to be of an ethnicity other than white, which again is important because a large number of people awaiting a solid organ transplant on the waiting list for longer than seven years are, over, are of, eth of an ethnicity other than white. And also importantly, they were significantly less likely to have a past medical history of hypertension, which again is important for graft outcomes. If, you have hyper if your donor has hypertension, your outcomes are normally worse following transplantation. So in total, these uh, donors resulted in over 1,000 organ transplants. Now, I won't read out uh, the exact numbers of all of them, but as you can see, their organs were used for the entire spectrum of solid organ transplantation we currently carry out in the UK. And when we looked at outcomes of these donors, in particular, I've looked at kidney transplant recipient outcomes with the light blue line showing if you received a kidney from a donor with increased risk behaviour and the orange line showing if you received a kidney from any other deceased donor, there is actually no significant difference between the two groups in terms of patient survival, indicating that this behavioural history likely didn't impact on transplant outcome. Similarly, when we looked at graft survival, which is basically how long it took for the kidney to fail following transplantation, there was no significant difference between lines, again indicating that the presence of increased uh, infectious risk behaviour did not negatively impact on transplant outcome. In terms of disease transmission, what we found was there's only three cases of unexpected hepatitis C viral transmission, and they were all from the same donor who was an active intravenous drug user at time of donation. So in summary for this part of the talk, what we found is that donors who have an increased risk behaviour are a viable source of organs for transplantation, and they can and they have been used successfully in the UK. There really is a potential to use more organs from these donors, however, and bearing in mind the concern regarding them is because of disease transmission, when we looked at the UK experience for the last 13 years, the risk of disease transmission is actually very small. Next, if we look at donors who have a cause of death secondary to infection, and in particular I'm going to talk about donors who die from meningitis or encephalitis, so for those of you who are unaware, meningitis is inflammation of the meninges, the kind of lining around the brain. And then encephalitis would be inflammation of the brain tissue proper. There is a real concern in the transplant uh, community around using organs from these donors because we had a recent UK case of disease transmission, which you may or may not be aware of, but it was highly publicised across the UK media. And it was where a single donor who died from encephalitis of an unknown cause, his kidneys were used for transplantation and resulted in the transmission of this disease to two renal transplant recipients who both sadly died 20 days following transplantation. So you can understand why the transplant community are a bit wary about using organs from these donors. However, we felt it was necessary to investigate whether or not they were safe to use or if there's been any other incidences of transmission. Just a little bit of background about meningitis and encephalitis then. So meningitis is a common cause of death worldwide and around 3,000 people get affected by meningitis every year in the UK, and of that number, around 300 die following the infection, so about one in 10. But importantly, people who get meningitis are normally young, healthy people, and the incidence of encephalitis is thought to be increasing. If we again look at SABTO for the UK guidance, they suggest that if a donor has died from a meningitis or encephalitis of an unknown cause, their organs should not be used for transplantation. However, if it's confirmed to be bacterial, you can use the organs. However, despite the caution from SABTO, because of the discrepancy I mentioned to you between organ supply and demand, organs from these donors continue to be used for transplantation. So we thought we'd assess what outcomes they had. So we identified 258 donors, around 2% of the total donor population, of which 37 died from encephalitis and 221 died from meningitis. 70 died from an unknown cause for their meningitis or encephalitis. And 188 died of a known cause. And when you look at this over time, again, red showing the number of actual organ donors and blue showing the number of potential donors, the number of people dying with meningitis or encephalitis 
who could have been organ donors, you can see there's a huge discrepancy between what's available for transplantation and what we're actually using. And I think this figure demonstrates perfectly how wary transplant clinicians are about using organs from these donors, because there's a lot available, but we're actually using a very small number. And if we quickly look at the donor demographics of donors dying with meningitis or encephalitis, as you might expect, they were significantly younger, again, but also importantly, they had lower BMIs, they were significantly less likely to have hypertension, less likely to be smokers, and less likely to have heart disease. So in general, they were young, healthy donors. And again, they resulted in almost a thousand organ transplants. And again, the organs were used across the entire spectrum of solid organ transplantation that we currently carry out. And when we assessed outcome, and again, I've chosen to look at kidney transplant outcome with the light blue line showing if you received a kidney from a donor with a known cause of meningitis, the orange line, an unknown cause of meningitis, and then the yellow line, all other causes, so any other deceased donor, you can see actually, interestingly, your outcomes were significantly better if you received a kidney from a donor who died from meningitis or encephalitis. And this is likely due to the donor being young and being relatively healthy pre-donation. And that was the same for patient survival. In terms of cases of disease transmission, the only case we found was the one I mentioned before that was highly publicized in the UK from a single donor to two renal transplant recipients. And it was of a very rare nematode infection called Helicophallibus gingivalis, which I've shown in the brain biopsy slide on the screen. But to give you an idea of how rare this organism was, it was only the sixth time in the worldwide literature that this organism had been reported, meaning that even if we'd increased the amount of screening we did microbiologically for different types of infections, it's unlikely we ever would have detected this particular infection. So in summary for this part of the talk, donors with meningitis and cephalitis, the first thing we noticed was there had actually been quite a steady use of organs from these donors, despite current guidance cautioning against their use. But in total, they make up quite a small proportion of the donor pool. But in general, they are young and healthy donors. In terms of recipient outcomes, what we saw was graft and patient survival was comparable across all transplant types. And in fact, for kidney recipients, you had significantly better survival if your donor died from meningitis. However, the risk of disease transmission is small, but we've quantified it for the first time in the UK at being around 1 in 70. So as the final part of my talk, looking at donors with infection, I'm going to look at donors with active infections. And by that, I mean donors who have hepatitis C. So for those of you who are unaware, hepatitis C is a bloodborne viral infection which is endemic worldwide, with the WHO ranking the UK's prevalence as being moderate, so 1.5 to 3.5%, or roughly around 400,000 adults are chronically infected with hepatitis C. However, as you can imagine, organs from these donors are often not used for transplantation, not only because of the risk of transmitting the disease to the recipient, but also because of the effect that hepatitis C has on the transplantable organ. So it causes liver failure, as I'm sure you're all aware, it causes kidney failure, and can in fact cause damaging effects to the heart and lungs. So you might be thinking, why would we even consider taking the risk in using organs from donors with hepatitis C? The reason we can do that is because of the introduction of new direct acting antivirals. So these are drugs that target non-structural proteins involved in hepatitis C life cycle replication. And in large studies have shown that you can actually achieve a cure of hepatitis C in up to 80% of patients. However, the question remained of whether or not they would be effective in the complex transplant setting. However, multiple studies now, including the one I've shown on the screen in the American Journal of Transplantation, have shown that you can use these drugs in transplant recipients, have no interactions with immunosuppression, and actually achieve a cure of greater than 90%, meaning that we now have a cohort of donors who have hepatitis C that were previously not being used, that could now be used for transplantation. Again, if we look to SABTO, what they say is organs from donors with hepatitis C are contraindicated for transplantation with two important caveats. That's if the recipient has hepatitis C or if the transplant is felt to be truly life-saving. However, when we looked at the UK's experience of using organs from donors with hepatitis C, we found only 244 donors had been consented, so roughly 1% of the donor, total donor population of which 70%, around 70% did not proceed to have their organs used for transplantation, and only 30% did. And when you look at this again over time, and you look at the red and blue bars, again, you can see there's a huge discrepancy between what's available for transplantation and what we're actually using, again, indicating that there's a large potential resource of organs available for transplantation that have never before been utilised. When we look at the reasons why these organs weren't used for transplantation, as you might expect, the most common reason was virology. But then, when we assess the other reasons, very few are actually declined because of poor function, indicating that in the absence of hepatitis C, these might actually be quite good quality donors. When we assess the organ quality of the discarded kidneys and livers from the hepatitis C positive donors, and we did this by looking at specific blood tests 
for kidney function, such as creatinine and how well they filter, we saw that these were within the normal range. And when we use something called the UK Kidney Donor Risk Index, essentially a mathematical score where we can predict how long a kidney will last following transplantation, we found that around 77% of the discarded hepatitis C positive kidneys would have functioned for at least five years. Similarly, for the liver, we looked at liver function tests and saw that the majority of these were within the normal range. And again, using this mathematical score to predict how long the liver will last following transplantation, we found that around 80% of the livers would have been functioning at five years if we'd used them for transplantation. So if we look at the ones we actually did, so we used 76 hepatitis C positive uh, organ donors, resulting in 68 liver transplants, 27 kidney transplants, and two heart transplants. And when we assessed their outcome, and I've chosen to focus on liver now just because it's the largest cohort, with the uh, light blue line showing if you received a liver from a hepatitis C positive donor, and the orange line showing if you received a liver from a hepatitis C negative donor, what you can see is there's no significant difference between the two groups on patient or graft survival, indicating that the presence of donor hepatitis C did not necessarily negatively impact your transplant outcome. Now if we assess their potential benefit, we decided to match the 146 hepatitis C positive donors who weren't used for transplantation to people who died whilst on the transplant waiting list. So we found over the 10-year period there was over 1,500 people who died whilst awaiting a liver transplant, of which there's 233 possible matches from these donors. There's around 5,000 people who died whilst awaiting a kidney transplant, of which there's around 717 possible matches. And there's around 1,700 people who died whilst awaiting a heart or lung transplant, of which there's 539 matches, giving us around 1,500 missed opportunities where organs from hepatitis C positive donors could have been used for people who actually died whilst they were awaiting a transplant on the waiting list. Next, if we look at cost, so here's a line showing the cost of hemodialysis in orange and then the cost of receiving a kidney transplant in blue. You can see it becomes around cost neutral at two to three years following transplantation. If you factor in receiving a kidney from a hepatitis C positive donor, and then I treat you with the new direct acting antivirals I mentioned before, which can achieve a cure in upwards of 90% of people, you see it becomes cost neutral with dialysis at around five years. So in conclusion, donors with infection present an opportunity to truly increase transplant activity in organ donation, particularly donors with hepatitis C. Donors with meningitis and cephalitis, despite what you may have seen in the media, are actually a valuable source of organs for transplantation, and they can and they have been used successfully. However, it's important to point out that if we are to go down this route and start using more donors who have infection, it should be with fully informed, appropriate recipient consent. Thank you. I'll skip questions, right? So the, the, the second talk this evening is a, a slight change in that we're going to talk about um, less focus on donors and, and, organ, and more on organ preservation, particularly kidney preservation. This um, talk will be presented by Professor um, Michael Nicholson. So I've just changed my talk a bit several times, so I'm just going to reload it. Sorry about this. So I'm Mike Nicholson. I've been a kidney transplant surgeon for about 25 years. And I've done something like 1,100 kidney transplants and 600 operations to take a kidney out of a living donor to give to a loved one. Now, we're going to talk about kidneys from deceased donors this evening. And one of the things with these kidneys is that there's a national matching scheme. So there's 6,000 people waiting for a kidney transplant this evening in the UK. Now, the kidney donor may be in Carlisle, but there's a computer matching system, and there may be a lucky recipient in Cambridge. So the kidneys have to be transported around the country. And this is done in static coal storage. The kidney's taken out of the donor, the blood is washed out of it, it's cooled down, and then it's put in an ice box. So in this polystyrene box is crushed ice, the kidney's in a sterile solution in a plastic bag inside it, and you put it in the back of the car and drive it around the country. It works the same way as your fridge 
you, you put stuff in your fridge to preserve it. And in the kidney, this works by cooling the organ down because obviously it's not getting any oxygen. If you cool it down to fridge temperature, 4 degrees C, then its oxygen requirement is about 5% of normal. The problem is that kidneys deteriorate during refrigeration, which is the same as your food in the fridge. I don't know if you're like me, but you find stuff in the back of your fridge that you've left there for too long, growing penicillin for yourself. So eventually, if you keep a kidney in an icebox, it runs out of steam and it won't work. And what's actually happening at a cellular level is that the ATP stores in the kidney are gradually diminishing. And this is like a battery discharging or your cell phone running out of charge. I'm sure you know what ATP is. These are the little packages of energy used by every cell in every living organism to fuel metabolism. So it's the cellular fuel that every organism uses. Keep pressing the wrong button. Now, the other thing that, obviously, if you keep a kidney long enough, it'll actually die. But that's not the real problem. The real problem is this thing called delayed graft function. So we take a kidney and we transplant it into somebody. And when you put, if you join it up, it's a plumbing exercise. You put new blood into it. One of two things happens. The most exciting and brilliant thing that can happen is it produces urine immediately. And you see the urine coming out of the drainage of the kidney. It can actually squirt across the operating table. So you have to point it at the junior person. <laughs> because someone's underpants have got to be wet and it's not going to be mine. So that's fantastic. If that happens, the patient who was on dialysis doesn't need to do their dialysis anymore. And they can go home. Everyone's happy. The other 50% of kidneys, though, you plug them in, blood goes into the organ, it looks healthy, but it doesn't produce any urine. And this is because it's been damaged during the cold storage process. It's a real pain if there's delayed function. The kidney will get going eventually, but it's got to repair itself, it's got to wake up. This can take a few days, but it might even take six weeks. During this time, the patient has to continue on their miserable dialysis, it's a longer hospital stay, the kidney doesn't work as well, and eventually the survival of these kidneys is not as good as kidneys that work straight away. Now we've been developing a new technique of organ preservation to try and prevent some of these problems, and it's called normothermic machine perfusion. So normothermia, the, the, the kidneys are warmed up, and we pass, pass a blood-based, it's actually a red cell-based solution, through the kidney, we give it oxygen, and what we're trying to do is mimic the conditions in the body, put it back into uh, the environment that it's used to. We do this using a heart-lung machine. As well as uh, being interested in getting the kidneys to work straight away, there's other uses of this technology, which are that you might be able to take a kidney before a transplant and assess it on the machine and see how good it is. And then the, the third thing, which is the most exciting for the future, is to actually intervene and give some treatment to the kidney before you transplant it. So something that might, for example, reduce the risk of rejection. So this is our bit of kit. This is the machine. It's based on paediatric cardiopulmonary bypass technology. In other words, it's a heart-lung machine. So when you do heart surgery, you have to stop the heart. You need a pump to pump the blood around the body, and you need some artificial lungs to add oxygen to the blood. So our system has got blood in a reservoir. This is a centrifugal pump, that's the heart. This little thing is a membrane oxygenator, that's the lungs. And you connect a, a plastic tube into it so the blood goes round in a circuit. In this thing here, this is the organ chamber, up, up at the top on the left is the kidney. You can see that there's bright red arterial blood going into the artery and then there's dark venous blood coming out of the vein, and if you're lucky, you get urine produced immediately. So here's the urine collection. We can add various goodies to the system to try and protect the kidney and tart it up. So what do we use to pump through the kidney? Well, it, I said it was red cell-based. We take a unit of packed red cells, they're called, so that's blood that's been donated, and they take the plasma and other good things from the blood and just leave the red cells in a suspended solution. So that comes out of the blood bank, and that is pumped at normal arterial pressure, 
the near normal body, body temperature, 35 to 37, through the kidney. We add some goodies, some nutrients and some steroids to try and protect the kidney. And importantly, there are no white blood cells, no platelets, and none of the protein called complement in this system. And they are things that cause damage, cause inflammation. So the idea is to perfuse the kidney for a short period in ideal conditions with smart blood. Pinch that from James Bond. Right, now this may or may not work. Here we go. So this is a cartoon. So the blood in the reservoir is pumped through the centrifugal pump into the membrane oxygenator where it's also heated to body temperature, then into the kidney through its arterial system, drains through the blue venous system, and if you're lucky, the kidney produces urine in front of you. Now I've got a video that, that um, doesn't work in this system. But if anybody wants to see it, they can see it on my map. never work. So this is how we do it. The normal system is you cold stall the kidney in the box of ice whilst it's being transported. Then you get your patient in and you have to get them ready for surgery. So that might take up to 24 hours. And then we take the kidney out of the box and transplant it. What we do with our new system is it's still cold stored and shipped down from Carlisle. But while we're putting the patient to sleep for their transplant, in the operating theatre we put it on the machine for an hour. And we think that recharges it with ATP. The cellular energy is put back into it. So this is like recharging your cell phone. It only takes an hour to do. So there's no point doing it for a longer period than that. And then we transplant it. Now we've done three things with this technology. The first is we try to recondition kidneys to make them work better immediately. And that's very important, but probably not the most exciting. The second thing is there's lots of kidneys that are taken and then thrown away, not transplanted, because the surgeons are not sure that they're of good enough quality. So we want to put them on the machine as a quality assessment device. And then the third thing is the machine's potentially a brilliant platform for pre-transplant treatment or modulation of the, of the kidney. So I'll show you a little bit about all three of those. So this is the first bit, the reconditioning. So the aim was to see if this was feasible and safe. And if you recondition the kidney like this, did they work better immediately? And we've compared, don't worry about these, we've compared 50 kidneys that we put on our machine with 92 kidneys that had been transplanted just after being in the icebox. It's a historical control group which has its limitations, but that's the comparison we made. <clears throat> now the thing is, there's different sorts of kidney donor. There's live donors where a perfectly healthy individual gives over a perfect kidney to a loved one and that's the equivalent of a Rolls-Royce. Then there are brain death donors. So these are patients maintained on a ventilator on the intensive care unit but although their brain is dead their heart is still functioning and perfusing the kidneys with oxygenated blood. So they're pretty healthy organs. They're not as good as live donors but this is your Ford Mondeo type <laughs> kidney. Perfectly good, sound thing. And then there's these DCDs, the circulatory death donors that Patrick mentioned. So this is somebody whose heart stops, and for a period of time, it might be 15 minutes, might even be half an hour, there's no oxygenated blood going to the kidneys. 
Now, the reason you die when your heart stops is that your brain cannot sustain no oxygen for more than about three minutes. But interestingly, the kidney can probably sustain not having any oxygen for about an hour. So these are called DCD kidneys, and it, that's a, a, a bit of a battered old rusty 2CV. It will get you around, it does the job, but it's not, you'd prefer a Ford Mondeo or if you really want a Rolls Royce. So these are the results of the comparison we made. If you look at the rate of a kidney working immediately, immediate function, this is the old-fashioned cold storage group. About half of them go straight away, so that's not too bad. But when we put the kidneys, 50 kidneys on the machine, in fact, 80% of them went straight away. So this is preliminary data, and we don't want to make too much of it at this stage, but it looks like this may improve early graph function. So what we've got to do now, of course, is a big trial. So this is a randomized trial in those four centers. And our primary endpoint is delay graph function, or whether the kidneys go immediately. And we know, we know that we need 400 kidneys in this trial. It's a randomized trial, toss a coin, whether it stays in the icebox or gets an hour of normal thermic perfusion. And with those 400, we should be able to get an answer to the question, does this new technology really improve early graph function? Right, the second thing I mentioned was using this machine as a quality assessment tool. And in order to study this, we took 92 human kidneys that had been removed from donors with the intention of transplanting them, but then there was some problem with them. They didn't look right. The surgeons were not confident enough to transplant them. So those kidneys are discarded. It's a disaster. They're thrown away. So a series of 92 of those. <coughs> this is an example so this is two kidneys from a, one of these DCD, <coughs> 2CV donors. And these kidneys, when they were taken out of the body, the blood would not wash out of them. So they're this purple mottled color. When the blood is washed out of a kidney, it looks lovely. It looks like a chicken breast. It's a sort of clear thing. So that's, that's, you can see. And every center, there's 24 transplants in the UK, were phoned up and they said, we don't want them because they won't work, because they're full of blood. But this is after five minutes on the machine. I don't think you have to be a, an expert or know anything about this to realize that after half an hour, these are perfectly good kidneys from a 42-year-old donor thrown in the bin. These two people could have been off dialysis. This is happening to something in the region of 200 or 300 kidneys a year in the UK that are being discarded, potentially unnecessarily. So what we did was we developed a, a, our quality assessment score, which is out of five. And it, it was basically simple things are often the best. It was started with just looking at the kidney. You can see the one on the left is perfectly perfused. We give that one point. This one's not good at all, all over, so that gets three points. And somewhere in the middle gets two points. And then you can look at the blood flow through the kidney and how much urine it produces on the machine, and this gives another couple of points. So you end up with a scoring system between one, a perfect kidney, and five, no good. And we think that you can probably transplant kidneys that have a score one to three definitely, possibly even a four. So of these 92 kidneys, in fact, 18 of the patients had suspected malignancy, which is why they weren't used, so they, they could never be used. But that left 74 and in fact, when we put them on the machine, 75% of those kidneys had a score that suggested they were usable, and 19 didn't. So in the year 2014-15, there were 256 kidneys thrown away in the UK. If these numbers are right, then the use of this technology could have provided an extra 150 kidney transplants, 150 people off dialysis. So those kidneys were all thrown away anyway. Now we've gone on to use the technology to assess kidneys that are not going to be used. They've been deemed untransplantable by everybody. Put them on the machine, see what they look like, and then transplant them. And we've got a series of patients who have got transplant strategies. This is the very first example. It's a kidney that half of it wouldn't flush of blood. And again, you put it on the machine, a few minutes, it's obviously viable. And these two kidneys, they produced half a litre of urine each on the machine in an hour. They were clearly okay. 
They were both transplanted with excellent results. So this is what the machine has done to a bit of a battered and bruised kidney. A nice shiny one. Still old, still not a Rolls Royce, but was going to be thrown away and the machine has done this to it. The third thing, the thing that excites me the most is pre-transplant modification of kidneys. And we've done, an, we've got, an, there's, there's so many potential things that you could do to a kidney uh, in order to improve it. And I'll just talk about two things. One is the white blood cells are in kidneys and the other thing is delivering treatments using nanoparticles. So every organ in your body has is, is got white cells from the blood that crawl through it, surveying, looking for trouble, looking for infection. And in fact, when you transplant a kidney, it's the white blood cells that cause rejection of the kidney, not the kidney cells themselves. The kidney cells don't excite much of an immune reaction, but a white cell does. So if you could get rid of all the white cells out of a kidney, it would be less likely to elicit an immune response and cause rejection. So one thing you can do on the machine is these, these fantastic white cell filters that remove all the white cells from the blood. Now, there's no white cells in the blood to start with, but when you circulate it through the kidney, the white cells that are in the tissues come out into the blood, and then we can trap them in the leukocyte white cell filter. So this is a, we've done this on a number of human kidneys. It's got great potential to reduce rejection in the future, but that's... We're at quite an early stage with that research. That's one idea. So nanoparticles are important. If you've, if, say you've got a gene that you've discovered that will prevent rejection. If you have a whole patient, you have to inject this gene, and you only want it to go to the kidneys, and it will be distributed through the whole body and diluted out. So one of the problems is getting enough of a treatment to go where you want it to. The other thing is, it might cause toxic effects on other parts of the body. So this problem of targeting is a, is a real one. Now, if you've got the kidney and the, the tin can in front of you on the machine, targeting treatment to it is not a problem. You could get your gene or any other treatment into the kidney directly without causing toxicity to the whole person. So we've done some experiments with Yale University using nanoparticles, which are 200 nanometers across, and they're, they're pegylated. And this, these panels here, the immunohistochemistry panels, they show a green dye which is highlighting a capillary through the kidney. The red dye is the nanoparticles. And when you merge the two, you see that the nanoparticles are being delivered to the blood vessels of the kidney, to the endothelial lining of the whole organ, which is where you want treatments to go. So this has got great potential in the future to intervene before you transplant a kidney. So we've had a, a number of several million pounds um, donated from various sources to do this research. And Sarah, who introduced us, has, is really the person that does all the work and the brains behind the operation. And I've got this great habit of taking all the credit. Um, Sarah's, we, we use pig kidneys to develop the system because they're very much like human kidneys. And if you total up the number of pig kidneys and human kidneys that Sarah's pumped on the machine, it's more than a 1,000 now, is that right? Okay. I can, I can, uh, I'm going to end there, and we can take some questions. Okay, so I'm not sure if you want to come up, Patrick. And if there's any questions about either talks, any questions about hybrid stoners or normothermic, um, Perfusion. Thanks. 
Yeah, we've, we've used quite a simple system in that we've just taken a cardiac bypass machine, which you can buy, and, and adapted it really to produce a single kidney. But there are companies now, commercial companies, that are making machines, not, not for the kidney at the minute, but there's a company in America that are making a heart machine, but it's incredibly expensive. It, it costs about £35,000 to produce a heart. Our, our system costs about £600 to produce the kidney. Um, similar system... Um, with the liver um, and the lung, and again, they're, they're, they're costing thousands of pounds to, to perfuse these organs. And, and cost in the NHS is a, is a really important factor. If things are to be adopted widely, we've got to look at ways of keeping the cost down, and that's what we've done with our system. It's a fairly low-cost system. It's, it's very adaptable. Um, other transplant centres in the UK, um, so guys in London... Newcastle, Edinburgh have got identical systems and are, are, are using this technology um, very successfully. If pig organs are similar to humans, what might the application make? Can, can you actually use anything from a pig into it, which obviously would take a bigger dose? So it's about xenotransplantation across the species that's been developed and they've actually gone over many of the hurdles, but unfortunately there's this sort of got stuck, that's our idea. But I think there's a p potential for it in the future. And uh, one of the ideas we've had is that um, in order to, to use a pig kidney, <coughs> you have to put a specific gene in it that stops human blood clotting when you put it through the kidney. It, it's an antidote to the complement protein system. And the way they did that was to create a transgenic pig. In other words, you take a pig ovum and you can inject human gene into it, so when that cell starts to divide to form <coughs> an embryo and then a fetus, every cell in the body's got the antidote gene in it. So that's kind of pain because you have to grow a whole pig and all the rest of it. One thing you could possibly do is introduce that gene into a pig kidney on the machine, and then if that's expressed properly, you've already you've created a transgenic organ in front of you without having to produce a whole I think it's a way off, actually. It's a bit like, you know, we always stem cells are very exciting and people talk about growing kidneys, but I think it's probably not in my life. Hello? If you get rid of your liver, it's all quite better. If you get back some juice, you can eliminate What's the last bit? Eliminate? Suppression. Yeah, immunosuppression. Yeah, absolutely. That's the one of the holy grails of the anti-rejection drugs, the immunosuppressive drugs we did are so powerful and they've got a list of side effects as long as your arm. And that's one of the really big problems for patients. Kidney transplant patients literally, I thought it was a fly, they literally take a handful of tablets. And I can't take a couple of paracetamol. I find it difficult. So it's, it's an enormous nuisance. So yes, I mean that, hopefully we, we can get to the point where you at least could certainly reduce the anti-rejection treatment. The main anti-rejection drug
good question. We, we'd probably never be able to get them all out. But there's, there's certainly particular cells that excite rejection that we, we have shown we can wash out of the kidney. We've done experiments where we uh, have changed the filter every 15 minutes over the hour, and Sarah will tell you what that shows. <laughs> the, the filter gets saturated. It's quite a small filter in the system, but it's saturated within 30 minutes. So we're doing some more prolonged experiments. So even at an hour, they're not all removed. So we're doing some experiments at the moment and doing two, three, four hours of perfusion, changing the filters every every hour to see, and then looking at counting how many um, white cells are in the filter, and then we'll look and see what's left in the kidney. So that's really quite new research, which we're, we're doing in the lab with some of these kidneys that are rejected for transplantation. So, um, so hopefully, you know, several months, we'll have an answer to that, knowing what size of filter we need to use, how many filters, how long we need to perfuse it to actually get rid of them all. So it's potentially really quite exciting and probably quite important for, for transplantation and doing that research. <laughs> so, um, Professor Peter Friend is the guy in Oxford who has developed this, and they've produced a huge, it's a huge machine, it needs its own van, and they've perfused the liver for the entire period of that uh, before it's transplanted, and they've got some really excellent results with that. But logistically, it's a bit of a nightmare, really, because you have to have a big machine, which costs a lot of money, a van, people to babysit it the whole time. You can't leave it, because if the, if the machine comes dis disconnected or there's a problem and you have to get the liver off it pretty quickly else the liver will be destroyed. So our system, the beauty of our system is logistically dead easy. The kidney comes in the ice box and we pump it in the theatre while the patient then puts the Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
have thought about that. People have thought about that. When you, when you transplant a kidney, it's not put back into where it came from. You know, your kidneys in your loins and your ribs. We put them in the groin down here and plug them into the blood vessels to supply the leg. One of the things that does is it, it causes an intense fibrotic or scarring reaction around the kidney. So if a kidney is in for any period of time at all, when you to try and get it out again, it's like chipping through concrete, and it's, it's really almost impossible to get a kidney out so that you could reuse it. If a kidney had been put in for a few days and it failed, then it, it's much easier to think about that. And that has sometimes been thought about when, in a rare but unfortunate case where a kidney is transplanted, um, the recipient actually dies. They may have brain death themselves, for example. So the kidney is still being fused, but they're, they're dead. I think people have thought about that, but I don't think it's ever been done. Um, I remember one That's Professor Yochman, she's from Belgium. Right. <laughs> she's a top transplant surgeon. That, that's what she told me. <laughs> <laughs> I hope it's not a naive question. Can it be done more than once for the same kidney? Yes, there's, there's no reason why not. Um, yeah. Give you both a chance yeah. for yeah. yeah. So do you want to, I'm doing all the talking, which is, I get criticised for. So Sarah will tell you about an interesting case where we did some needle fusion. Yeah, I mean, we, we've, we've had, we, our, our protocol really is to, to, to perfuse the kidney as close to the transplant as possible. So it's perfused for 60 minutes. Then we have to flush the kidney with cold preservation solution to get rid of the blood. So it, it goes back cold for a short period of time and then it's almost transplanted immediately. We had one case where um, we were perfusing the kidney the recipient was being prepared for surgery and they had a, an allergic reaction to the antibiotic that, that was unknown at the time. Um, so we had to stop the operation and we had this kidney being perfused. So they recovered the patient and went off to ITU. Um, so we continued the perfusion. We finished it at 60 minutes. We flushed it with cold solution, put it back on ice. And luckily we managed to get another recipient in quite quickly. So the kidney was then transplanted about five or six hours later, it worked immediately. So we think, I mean, that was really important for us, and we've subsequently done a number of these in Cambridge where they've had a prolonged period of cold storage just through some delay in, in getting the transplant. And these kidneys seem to work well, so that we know that um, possibly in the future we could have a, an organ hub where the kidney, if, it's, if we have concern about quality, the kidney can come to a centre, we can perfuse it. If we think it's good, it's of good quality, it can then be packed up and transported to, the, to another centre with, with the best recipient. So I think that's for, for future, and certainly we're building up a series of these kidneys. We are currently in the UK, we are, are the only ones that have done this work on the kidney, but we have trained people in, in Guy's and St Thomas's in Newcastle and Edinburgh, so they're, they're performing um, the exact same technique as us. Um, worldwide, not yet. There's lots of people um, in many centres across the world that are very interested and several that we're actually helping to set up similar systems. So I think in the next few years they'll start to be doing some clinical cases as well. They're doing some experimental work on pig kidneys, um, but nothing clinical as yet. So we were really the first, and we did our first case um, five years ago and, and transplanted it. So, yeah, it's very exciting. Yeah, so the donors I was talking about make up a considerably smaller proportion of the donor population. So with, when you combine all the infections together, it's around 10% of the total donor population, whereas you compare it to road traffic accident or stroke intracranial hemorrhage, it's probably around 40% would you say, or more, come from this cohort of donors. But I think the importance of the donors with infection is they're significantly less likely to be consented and less likely to actually proceed. So it's almost we're self-selecting our donors ourselves. So we're saying the majority come from road traffic accidents, but it's because we're not using 
there's huge other cohorts of people dying with infections. So I think if we continue using them and we can increase donation from this cohort, it might begin to balance out and they might reveal themselves to be a far bigger group of donors than we think at the moment. Yeah, so if you're, it depends on what type of donor you then become, if you're these DCD donors, circulatory death, or if you're a donation after brainstem death. So if you're a young person, say less than 40, and you're a brainstem death donor, around 90% of them will have their organs used for transplantation. So I think 7% are eventually not used for one reason or another. DCD becomes about 60%. So if you're in a road traffic accident and you die from circulatory cause of death, 60% of these people will have their organs used. So, a very high proportion. Given, given consent for organ donation. So, in this setup, all of, every single one of them will have consented for, their, or their next of kin will have consented to have their organs used for transplantation. So it's surprisingly high in the UK, actually. So I think the last time I read it was about six out of 10 families when NHSBT have looked at it. So even if, even in cases where the donor has said prior to death that they would like their organs used for transplantation, the family still obviously have the right in the UK to overturn that decision. And I think the last time I read it was about six in 10 families do overturn that decision and decide that their relative should not donate their organs. So I suppose the strategy from NHSBT is public awareness and education and primarily having those conversations with your next of kin prior to obviously the horrible event if you die. So th the problem in most of the cases where the family refuses are unaware of their relative's wishes and therefore they err on the side of caution and say actually maybe we won't do this. And so the best thing NHSBT or we can do is have that conversation with our relatives and say this is what I want and then the other issue is logistics so Professor Nixon and Sarah mentioned it can be a really long process where the kidney kind of sits and even before that there's a huge process where uh, someone has to come and speak to the next of kin it's obviously a very emotive time in their life as someone just died and you have to ask them for something that can be a bit impersonal so we have to improve that process as well to increase the family acceptance rate. But Wales has introduced a, um, an opting out system. So the law in Wales now is you have to register and say that you don't want your organs removed. So presumed consented or voluntary. Um, but it's, we don't know what effect that's had yet. It's like a pilot really. And a number of countries in Europe have introduced that and increased their donation rates. It's a very difficult thing though. If, you, if by law we can take the organs, but the next of kin beside themselves and, and says, please don't do this. Uh, for me, it doesn't matter what the law says. If the family comes to me and sort of begs me not to do this, I'm not going to do it. So it's a, it's a tricky one. Yeah, I think that would be, again, because the technology is so useful, you could even, for hepatitis C, depending on how long you wanted to refuse it, you could give the drugs outside of the body and you could actually see the viral load go down with hepatitis C in real time. And then you'd be in quite a confident position to transplant them. Or even if it's a test that we currently don't have and another lab does, you could send the sample and they could test for the virus or the infection whilst the kidney waits safely on this machine to be confirmed. Yeah, it'd be very good use of the technology. No, so for hepatitis C, just based on our current guidance, they were only ever used 
into people who already had hepatitis C, apart from the two uh, heart transplant recipients, which were urgent, which is probably why they were used. Uh, but we, we initially did it to see, basically, did it make any difference? So did the donor presence of hepatitis C actually impact on the recipient? And there's lots of evidence in hepatitis C, because there's lots of different genomes, that if you get a different type of genome and you have another, it can impact outcome. And so it didn't in this instance. Uh, the great thing about these new antiviral drugs, though, is they can actually achieve a cure in greater than 90% of people. And that's in people who already have active hepatitis C infection. So we're talking about giving someone a very small amount of virus with an organ and then treating them almost immediately. We could see 100% cure rate in that, in that regard. But for those figures, the recipients were also infected. I think we'll end there. Thank you very much for coming this evening. We've got some feedback cards if anybody wants to, to fill in the questionnaire. Thank you very much. Thank you.